Next on Reboot Your Life. A former host of TV's The Doctors has a new book on relationships, parenting tips, codependency, and workaholism with 348 million comments on TikTok. Then, during Mental Health Awareness Month, we look at a critically acclaimed author's journey, starting with a bite of a PCP-laced brownie and a long series of mental breakdowns. It's next. From Riverside Recovery, it's Reboot Your Life. Experience the ultimate reboot of your journey. Start anew and rediscover you. Transform your story. Rewrite your life. It's Reboot Your Life with Carrie Harrison and Ashley Neal. From the Riverside Recovery Studios in Tampa, Florida, Carrie Harrison with you along with Ashley Neal, and thanks for listening to Reboot Your Life, where we help you get back the life you love through life hacks for recovery, resilience, battling addiction, expert advice, and stories of our human experience. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. Each week, you'll get new episodes both on the radio and on every streaming platform. You can also tweet us at Reboot Your Life. Well, you've probably seen Judy Ho, the former host of The Doctors. She's a triple board certified, licensed clinical forensic neuropsychologist and author. Say that 10 times fast. Her first book, Stop Self-Sabotage, has been in high demand for nearly five years. She's here with us today. And her new book on the trending topic of attachment theory, and we're going to get into what that is in a moment, and on TikTok alone, by the way, Hashtag attachment styles has gotten over 348.2 million views. Is it relevant? Uh huh. Her latest is called The New Rules of Attachment How to Heal Your Relationships, Reparent Your Inner Child, and Secure Your Life Vision. We learn how personal attachment style forms the cornerstone of our self perception and success in varying aspects of life, including reaching our goals, our friendships, even our health. It looks at methods for inner child work. Maybe your ACA. Who is it nowadays? Uh, parenting tips for developing secure attachment in children and even how to combat codependency and workaholism. In other words, everybody else on earth. Judy Ho, many people play TV doctors, but there are very few doctors who have played TV and made such a difference while appealing to so many people. So we want to welcome you to Reboot Your Life. Well, thank you so much, Carrie, for that lovely introduction and also for the warm welcome. So interesting that attachment theory has trended as much as it has in the past years, but it's actually a theory that goes back 60 to 70 years. So I think we're just learning new ways to apply them every day. And we have uh, multiple uh, call them programs out there that people have been going to for some 80 years, but it sort of never occurred to anybody that that's what this is. Uh, you right. found another way as a physician to make this available to the general public who are dealing with all of these conditions that I mentioned earlier, and they are conditions. Like being codependent isn't just a, well, I'm just codependent. Uh-oh. It's an uh-oh, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, codependency is something that we talk about so much. And yet maybe people don't really know the roots of why they're happening. You might recognize yourself in some of these traits, for example, or that you see that sometimes codependency plays a role in your relationships. But maybe you haven't paused to think about, well, where does that come from? Why, why the people pleasing? Why are you trying to save everybody in your lives? And it's a form of insecure attachment that usually explains why this is a drive for you. Maybe you could explain, Dr. Judy Ho, uh, your upcoming book on attachment theory and how that differs from your previous work, which was, is still you know, a bestseller, the one on self-sabotage. Boy, yeah. does that pull the, the curtain back too. 
Yeah, definitely. So Stop Self-Sabotage, as you mentioned, was my first uh, book for essentially for the masses, for lay people who are just wanting to understand how to apply scientific strategies to improve their own life. And I found that self-sabotage is just one of those universal phenomenons. We're all prone to it at some point in our lives, but if it becomes a bigger issue for you, then this is a book that helps you with the six steps on how to eradicate it. And we got pretty deep in the first book, but you know, I really wanted to think about for my second book, you know, what is the deepest level? Why, why do we self-sabotage? Why are there other things in our lives that we don't like and we don't um, feel like it's really reflecting our best selves? And it goes all the way back to attachment. And attachment is one of those things that is 100% universal because we all need attachments to survive, especially in our younger years when we really can't take care of ourselves. And so these early relationships, your first templates for how you're living as a human being and how you relate to others really has so much to do with the rest of your life. So I understand Judy Ho, uh, and, and again, I come at this as a general civilian here, maybe a, an enlightened civilian, at least on my best day, I like to think I am. Uh, the brain, as it forms, as we're children between zero and, say, nine, sort of hardwires itself to whatever conditions we're exposed to. And then after maybe about age 10, it sort of then just evolves beyond. But that's the template. So it's kind of like a little laptop. It knows the software that's installed on it. Then it starts running that as its operating system thereafter. And so then we could be 90 and still think and still acting like we're six responding to any situation. Exactly. And what you said is absolutely correct, that there's a, a there's essentially an operating system that develops in those first years because you're just learning how the world works your place in it, even your beliefs about yourself and whether or not you believe positive outcomes should happen to you and whether you deserve them. And as we get older, those templates still stick around because again, they're, they're sticky because it's the first time you learned about how the world works. And so you generalize a lot of those rules. And as you get older, even when situations change, even when you're more empowered and you have more ability to change your environment and change what happens for your life, we still stick to those old ideas. And our brains are uh, cognitive misers, they're always trying to save energy. And so the reason why these ideas stick around is because we kind of have selective memory as different situations happen to us. We kind of internalize the ones that already prove the beliefs you already have about yourselves. And then the ones that maybe disprove it, your mind is more likely to discount it. And so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for certain negative beliefs that you may have about yourselves. I bet when you were in med school, you weren't being taught, now this is what you're going to do someday. You're going to help millions of people. You're going to go on TV. You're going to have this kind of universal understanding of medicine. And then there's something called the brain, which is actually part of the human body. And it is a real motivator of all the rest of the body. But don't pay attention to that. Just work on ankles. And yet you totally got, uh-oh, there's this thing up there that operates everything else. And now yeah. you've written all these books. Attachment styles is the latest element of this, which is now sort of the core of everything, it seems. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I went to school for clinical psychology. So I went and received my PhD in clinical psychology. So I didn't go to med school, although um, I know a lot of physicians who are really interested in this topic because they see it in their patients. And that's oftentimes when I get the referrals from people who are maybe in primary care practice or maybe in a pediatric practice. And so when I was studying um, in my doctoral program, one of the things that I realized was that 
the past still matters. So a lot of my work was really about solving problems in the here and now. And that's obviously important. If you're having issues now, you want to know how you can address those issues and how to move forward. But if you never visit the past and you don't understand what the underlying triggers are and why this keeps happening to you, even though you solve one problem, a similar one will pop up again in a few months or a year. And this is really why attachment theory is so important to understand. Do you think that, say, veterans who are coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan, anywhere today in the world, really, come back with, they've been reprogrammed, they've been through boot camp, they've seen things that you and I maybe might enjoy on Netflix, but then the movie's over, we can go back to living our regular life, but they become conditioned by these things and then re-enter the world, now reconditioned. Uh, that's gotta be, I mean, this is what you're talking about too. It just looks a little different. Exactly. And sometimes these traumas and stressful experiences really imprint in our minds and becomes the scripts, the rules of how we live our life. So when you've been through trauma, you're more likely, for example, to be in more of a fight or flight state. You know, you're always looking around you to see if somebody might hurt you. And so sometimes you'll misinterpret people who might actually be trying to support you as someone who might be trying to hurt you or not have your best interests in mind. And that's, of course, going to affect your th thinking, your feelings, as well as your behaviors towards them and also just towards other events in your life. And I do find that when there are unhealed wounds, this is kind of how it works. It's like the baggage that you're carrying around become triggers for certain situations, whether you're relating to other people, whether you're trying to go for a goal in your career, whether you're trying to better your own physical and mental wellness, they become roadblocks to your ability to have more meaningful and joyful connections and to reach the goals you've set for yourself. Judy Ho, what are some of the key strategies for inner child work? This is a, a term that kind of comes in and out of fashion, but there really is something called an inner child. Like we actually know that now. And then right. with that, you have self reparenting so that you can have this secure attachment. How does that work? Yeah, so inner child, we all have that metaphorical little us inside of us, which essentially carries with it the memories and the experiences of our childhood years. Usually there's some need that wasn't met as a child and some rules that you generalize from that time and your inner child will still continue to affect you today if you haven't acknowledged those wounds and thought about how you might be able to repair them in your adult years. I think one thing that I've seen about attachment theory and, and what it says when we look at social media, when we look at online articles is sort of this idea of recognizing that you have an insecure attachment style and then just trying to deal with it, but people haven't really gotten to, well, how do you heal that attachment style? Is it possible to have secure attachment at any age? And the answer is yes. And the secret lies in healing your inner child through reparenting. And so you can make contact with your inner child just by trying to call up a memory that you've had, an experience you had in your childhood. Maybe when you experience a certain loss, a loss of a goal, a loss of an important person in your life, or maybe when you had a major upset or was disappointed by someone in your life. And once you've called up that situation, imagine your adult self going into that environment with your inner child and basically asking it one simple question, which is just, what do you need? You know, what do you need? What do you want? And really listen attentively for what your inner child is saying to you. And as an adult, you have so many more resources, so much more empowerment than maybe you had at a child's age when you really could not determine so much for yourself. 
So the next step of this simple exercise is just to, in the next 24 hours, commit to one small thing you can do to try to fulfill part of that child's expressed need. And this idea of reparenting is saying, hey, you don't have to wait for other people to heal you. You can do it yourself because you are a different person now than when you were a child and you're going to use your adult capabilities to help that child you. How do you, uh, Judy Ho, how do you actually connect with your inner child? Like it's, I get it. I think we all get it. But a lot of people are dilettantes in this field. I mean, they've probably never done it. It sounds great, yeah. but how do I actually do that? Is there a, a fast track to it or a slow track or a track? I think a lot of it is about being mindful, giving yourself enough time to connect with your inner child and not being afraid of what you might uncover. It's kind of like the monsters underneath your bed when you were a child. Like once you looked under the bed, oh, it's not as scary as you imagined. And so it's really being open to this idea of, okay, well, you know what? Like, I'm going to find out what my inner child wants and needs. And it's not going to be so scary because as my adult self, I'm going to have a lot more resources to be able to help my inner child. So it takes some practice. It takes some time, but visualization is definitely one of the easiest ways to access your inner child. And the exercise I just described would be one way to start the process. Carrie Harrison with you, along with Ashley Neal. We're talking to Judy Ho, former host of TV's The Doctors, a triple board certified licensed clinical forensic neuropsychologist and author. Her new book, The New Rules of Attachment, How to Heal Your Relationships, Reparent Your Inner Child, and Secure Your Life Vision, has evidence-based methods for inner child work, parenting tips, and shows how to combat codependency and workaholism. Uh, workaholism seems to be an inadvertent side effect of a culture, society, and economic system that requires you to have six, seven jobs just to make ends meet. So how can you not be a workaholic? But we're not talking about how many hours a day you're forced to work. We're talking how many you voluntarily work, right? Right, exactly. And workaholism is a, a form of addiction at its worst. So obviously it's an admirable addiction for many people. As you mentioned, we have this hustle and bustle culture. So people almost want to be a workaholic. They feel like they should talk about it that way. Um, there are certain cultures and companies that kind of almost reward that kind of behavior. And so it's kind of interesting because there's a part of it that seems like it helps you with your self-esteem. People admire you for it. People want to be more like you. But then when it's taken to the extreme, it's a form of escapist coping where you actually don't deal with the problems you actually have and you sink deeper and deeper into work as a way to support your self-concept and your self-esteem when it's so much, so much more important to have a balanced self-esteem where it comes from a lot of different sources. So people who might be workaholics, you know, their self-esteem is really predicated on their achievements. And so if something falters in that area, they have a really hard time coming back. And so that's one of the difficulties that workaholics struggle with in addition to maybe not addressing other problems in their life because every time they have one it's easy just to sink yourself into work and to try to bolster your self-esteem that way and put it off the central theme of your book is uh you know about attachment style and as i mentioned earlier on TikTok, it has almost 350 million views on it i mean it's only growing and expanding minute by minute and TikTok is really it's kind of like a relationship. It's kind of like a lover that keeps flashing and fire, stimulating your brain and, and giving you hope and what's next around the corner. So it's kind of a relationship app, if you will. And you talk a lot about relationships because at the end of the day, 
that's really kind of what all of us upright mammals want is some kind of relationship, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, no matter how you describe yourself, even if you think that you're a loner, um, we're social beings. Like we need socialization to survive and to thrive. And so even the most shy person, even the person who believes that they're recluses and loners, we all need some type of meaningful connection with another human being or several other human beings. And attachment styles, when they're insecure, can really hold you back from having those meaningful connects. And then, of course, it cascades into the other areas of your life, because without those meaningful connects, it's harder to do the things that you really want. And it's harder to get to that self-actualization phase because constantly you're almost like in a survival mode. And that's why it's so important to work on this. You know, it's astounding your insight, your observations, your facility with all the bandwidth and curves and hoops that that are part of the human condition. I mean, not everyone in your field, well, let's just say it, not everyone in your field is anywhere near as aware as you. How, how what's the 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 superpower that you have maybe you're just that way but how did you figure all this stuff out i think it's really years of being interested in self-development and working with patients and talking to family members and friends and colleagues about what really makes them tick you know and finding out that this is really one of those things that everybody thinks about at some point whether consciously or subconsciously but you have to want to do the work. And as a neuropsychologist, if I'm going to be treating my patients, I have to also really take a look at myself and understand how to apply these principles so that I can best help other people. And so it's really important that we're not so afraid of looking inwards. I think that sometimes that feels uncomfortable to people, but to get to your best self is absolutely necessary. As they say, intimacy means into me, you see. Right. That's a kind of vulnerability and vulnerability means taking the shields down off your enterprise and uh, being really exposed. And like you said, maybe you think there's monsters under the bed. I guess we have to rehearse or practice being vulnerable to find out that it's actually going to be okay. If you never practice it, you can never know it's going to be okay. Right. Absolutely. And that's why that practice that idea of practicing and, and thinking through things and then retooling, all of that's really important. You know, it's never really so bad if you make a mistake. I think the hardest thing and the thing that you're going to regret most is not trying and not trying to improve yourself when you know that there's room for all of us. As we wrap up our conversation, your approach to attachment theory is clearly revolutionary uh, and it's common sense. Let's just throw that in too but it is different from traditional views. So here you are surrounded by traditional views and you're doing that, you're cutting this radical path. It's really touching people. Oh, thank you so much, Carrie. I really do hope that these new rules of attachment are going to help people um, to get unstuck from any patterns that are holding them back. And also to know that scientific therapeutic work is achievable, right? Some people, I think we've come a long way in terms of reducing stigma about mental health struggles, but there's still more work to be done. And hopefully with this book, you can see that you can roll up your sleeves and start to do some of this work yourself. Is there a difference uh, between men and women in any of this? Do, do they act differently? I mean, we know we are different. We know mm -hmm. that I mean, women have a wonderful facility of actually seeing stuff, all of it. On the on the 
the smorgasbord of life and men, we like the big picture and then we'll walk on our knuckles. I speak for the men that I know anyway, including myself. Um, is there a difference between the approaches on how we, we pull off your, uh, your alchemy here? Yeah, you know, I think that there may be different ways that men and women express their insecure attachment styles um, based on cultural values and what they think is appropriate, right? So somebody who might have an avoidant attachment style as a man, um, they might, um, you know, kind of almost feel like they're being rewarded for focusing on things other than relationships and thinking about their emotions. Whereas for women, it might feel a little countercultural for them to take those same exact coping strategies. So if they're avoiding talking about their emotions, avoiding getting close to people, I've heard, I've heard women, patients of mine say, well, people don't expect that of me. Um, mm. They think that maybe that's something that's really important to me, but really I focus so much more on my career than my relationships. And it feels to them, even in this current day, as a little countercultural, because there are still those cultural ideas and norms that people think that women should maybe fall into. Like, oh, what do you mean you don't want to get married or have children? Um, what do you mean you don't care about relationships as much as other things in your life? And so I think that because of those cultural values, people express somewhat differently and they think about it differently too. Do you think a part of this is also uh, the digital age in which we live? I mean, in analog life, you would go to bars and meet people, of maybe not a great turnout, but, you know, yeah. it was something. Or you went to an art museum. I mean, you did museums. Remember those? These right. Stone buildings oh, I know. Painted. Yes, yes, statues. Uh, oh, these yeah. were the places where people met, even if it was a church or dinner parties. And now, really, it's uh, Zoom and uh, Facebook. And so yeah. it's got to be harder than ever for people to have a real connection. I mean, think of what Facebook did. In the old real world, you might have had four, five, six, seven real friends. On Facebook, mm -hmm. you can have 4,999 quote unquote right. friends. But right. really, does any of them have your back? I'm not sure. Exactly. And that's the thing, you know, quality over quantity always. And connecting in real life, there's still value to that. I know that it feels like there's a convenience to connecting online, but it's just not the same as being able to see somebody face to face, talk to them, you know, have real life conversation as opposed to this is just me talking through a medium like a social media platform or a blog, or this is just me trying to connect with people over FaceTime or Zoom or Microsoft uh, Teams because there is something to be said about the body language that people portray when they're in person with somebody and how that feels for our connection, because we were developed as a species on connection in real life. We were not developed as a species to connect digitally. So while there's a lot of amazing benefits of our digital connection, I mean, it's one of the reasons why Carrie, you and I are able to have a conversation right now. Yes. We have to balance it. We have to balance it with some in real life opportunities as well. Well, you are awesome, and I'm so glad that I have connected with you through this beautiful technology that allows me to be in my exactly. other hometown of Los Angeles, where you're <laughs> sitting right now, former host of TV's The Doctors, a triple board certified licensed clinical forensic neuropsychologist and author. Your new book, The New Rules of Attachment, How to Heal Your Relationships, Reparent Your Inner Child, and Secure Your Life Vision evidence-based methods for inner child work, parenting tips, and shows how to combat codependency and workaholism. And that's just part of it. The rest of it is what we've been talking about and way, way more. I want to thank you so much, Judy Ho, for joining us today. 
Thank you so much again, Carrie, for the awesome questions and for all of your support of my work. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was awesome. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. That was a lot of fun. If I were your client, I'd be so much better fast. So I appreciate <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you. Appreciate you, Carrie. Keep up the amazing work you're doing. And again, thank you for having me on your show. Riverside Recovery of Tampa was created to offer state-of-the-art treatment options to people suffering from addiction. The model was developed to meet clients and their families where they are at and provide them with the tools and education needed so that they can achieve long-term recovery. No two people are the same, and no two people have the same experience with addiction. And it is for this reason that we tailor each treatment plan to the unique needs of each individual. Located alongside the Hillsborough River in the heart of Tampa, Riverside Recovery offers the full continuum of care. And what that means Means is that we offer medical detoxification, residential care, day treatment, intensive outpatient, and outpatient levels of care. The program at Riverside is focused on high-quality clinical care offered in a safe, comfortable, and serene environment where everyone feels empowered to change the course of their lives. The stigma that surrounds addiction continues to be high on the list of reasons that people do not seek help. At Riverside Recovery, we are working to change the narrative and empower people to recognize addiction as a disease, not a moral failing. We can recover, and we do, as evidenced by the thousands of people who have taken that courageous first step and asking for help. The staff at Riverside understand what it's like to recover. In fact, over 75% of our staff are in long-term recovery. If you or someone you know needs help and are ready to seek treatment, call Riverside Recovery of Tampa at 1-800-871-5440. That's 800-871-5440. You can learn more about the treatment we provide at rrtampa.com. Again, that's rrtampa.com. Check out our Reboot Your Life hotline. We've set up a dedicated phone number so you can leave your comments, thoughts, and feedback whenever you'd like. It might even get on the air. Maybe you have a story that you feel needs to be shared or told. So, get it off your chest. Text or call our Reboot Your Life hotline at 323-8-REBOOT. That's 323-8-REBOOT. 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 Life 2.0. It's your life and your reboot. It's Reboot Your Life with Carrie Harrison and Ashley Neal. From the Riverside Recovery Studios in Tampa, Florida, Carrie Harrison here with you along with Ashley Neal. And thanks for listening to Reboot Your Life, where we help you get back the life you love. You can also get all of our past episodes at RebootYourLifeShow.com. So let's now step into the world of Ruth Poniarski. She's an artist grappling with mental illness. And it all began when she unknowingly ate a brownie laced with angel dust at a frat party back in 1977. And yes, in her PCP-fueled state, panic overwhelmed her. She believed a revolution was taking place and that groups of her people were leaving Earth in spaceships. The events of that night lasted for years and resulted in a series of mental breakdowns, jumping out of a window, uh, insomnia, depression, paranoia, irrational thinking, low self-esteem, not foreign objects to many of us here, and a double life trying to act normal while actually thinking and feeling this way while juggling education and work. She finally found a special high-risk psychiatrist who actually helped her reboot her life, get into painting, and Taught her, ways to de- uh, taught her ways to deal with her condition more effectively. And now, for Mental Health Awareness Month, 
Ruth's critically acclaimed memoir is out. It's called Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist. In Long Island is Ruth Poniarski, and welcome to Reboot Your Life. Thank you for having me. Your experience was so transformative. Other people may be too ashamed to even talk about it. Can you tell us what happened after you innocently ingested angel dust? Okay. First of all, I was shocked. I was in a state of shock. I hallucinated a cavernous bed of candles, lit candles, very like an enclosed, I was trapped in in a cave. I wanted to jump out the window and the male friend who gave me the brownie stopped me from jumping out the window. Then I went on the couch and I sat there for about an hour and I kind of like regained my sense of composure, very little. Then I left his apartment at the party. I went into my car. I got into my car and then I traveled. It is This is a college in the north. So I traveled to Highway 90 that takes you to Massachusetts. Then I turned around and went west to the New York State Thruway. And all of a sudden I started being paranoid and panicked and I imagined that there was a revolution going on and I was going to be abandoned by my people. And it's just horrible. I felt disengaged. I felt disoriented. I just felt terrible, terribly isolated. Anyway, I got on the thruway. I started driving down the thruway, thinking that I could reach my boyfriend, who did not return that semester at college. His brother was going attending college in Poughkeepsie. I thought maybe he can help me. And... Then I turned around and I said, no, he can't help me. I turned around again. I kept turning around and turning around. Finally, I parked the car on the shoulder of the New York State Thruway. I got out of the car and I started walking, thinking that I can find the launching pad for the spaceships that were taking my people away from me. I kept walking for about 12 miles from midnight to dawn. When the sun rose, reality hit me for a minute. I hitched a ride back to my college town. The guy who gave me the the ride, he stopped about five blocks before my apartment in the college town. I left him, thanked him, went to my apartment. And in my apartment was my father, the male scheming friend who gave me the brownie cake, his roommate, and my two roommates two female roommates. And they were all anticipating my return if I should return, because obviously a missing person's report was reported. And surprisingly, the state police got in my car and got the registration out of my car and found out that my father, it was registered to my father's business. That's how my father learned about this fiasco and how he was there in uh, the college town. And from then on, he took me to a psychiatrist, took me home, took me to a psychiatrist on Long Island. That was my first time seeing a psychiatrist. And the first time I really was an ailment. I I was a healthy child. I never really had to go to the doctor except for- So you never had a predisposition to depression or any of this before angel dust? Yes. What happened to my- this? The angel dust was in my fourth year of college. In my second year of college, 
I, I was taking an architecture program and I had a group of architecture students, about 10 from my class. We were very close. We would do things together and we would have little parties together. And at the parties, we would smoke marijuana. I smoked it heavily for uh, the fall semester of my sophomore second year. And one night I blacked out for about four hours. I smoked so much. And then after that, I said, no more. But it left lingering depression, lingering se low self-esteem, a little anxiety, um, a little paranoia. And that lingered. That did not go away. It lingered and, and it, it interfered with my studies at school. I was goalless. I was not proactive. I was passive. And that for, for two years, that lingered. And the combination of that and the angel dust just triggered everything. I'm going to just jump in for a second and reintroduce you. People get in and out of their cars, as they do. We're okay. talking right now to Ruth Poniarski. She's an artist grappling with severe mental illness during Mental Health Awareness Month. We're looking at her journey that started with a bite of a PCP-laced brownie, accidental. It was given to her, and it created a long series of mental breakdowns, including insomnia, depression, paranoia, uh, all this interlaced with having uh, smoked marijuana and done other things throughout her life. And it it's a cautionary tale to not everyone responds the same way to everything. And it could be absolutely devastating and literally uh, an impossible obstacle to overcome without some kind of intervention. Thankfully, Ruth did have that intervention. And let's talk about that. In the beginning, you went to psychiatrists who really didn't understand what was going on. And so they probably did traditional stuff. But later, you found what's known as a high-risk psychiatrist. What's a high-risk psychiatrist? Okay. At that point, I arrived at that high-risk psychiatrist. We'll call him George. I was in a wheelchair. It was about a month, two months after I was hospital. I had fallen 30 feet from my apartment window. I went seven days without sleep, very paranoid, to, very paranoid. I was imagining my neighbors were going to persecute me, and I couldn't go out the front door, so I went out the window with tied sheets forming a rope, hopefully repelling down the wall, but that didn't work. Anyway, 12 hours of surgery, two months in the hospital. While I was at rehab in New York City, a the head psychiatrist at NYU suggested this high-risk psychiatrist. So by the time I reached George, the high-risk psychiatrist, I was in a wheelchair. I didn't get a chance to say George was a Quaker, and he was a World, World War II veteran. Well, so tell me a little a bit more difference. about that. Well, he, you know, he he got out, he was in, on the front in World War II. And then he was hit with 80 shrapnels in his body. So he was ended up in the hospital for a year. Then after that, he, he had high, he was very intelligent. He went to Haverford and Columbia University and he became a psychiatrist. And... In his life, he became a Quaker. I'm not sure when he became a Quaker, but he became a Quaker, which really was very democratic. It's a very democratic um, religion, if you want to call it that way, or way of life, you know. And and his experiences in World War II, he used to tell me little exercises for sleep, 
you know, to uh, to do um, rolling of the eyes, like a, a certain exercise, you know, that he had mentioned. So he was very aware of my problems because of what he had gone through, not just book knowledge. You, you know what I'm saying? It takes yeah. a, as, as they say, a battle-hardened veteran to understand what civilians go through. It's just a different circumstance, but we do see that people who've been through the worst of the worst can help all the rest of us. Like, what an Absolutely. amazing gift to have a psychiatrist who'd been in that war, came back, understood what you were going through, and was able to actually help you as opposed to just being discarded to the side as many vets are. Like, here's yet oh, another yeah. example of, of a really cool one. And he became a Quaker, and he helped you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for instance, you know, no, no drink. I never really drank that much alcohol, but he said no alcohol. And then also for sleep, he goes, do not have coffee past three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, little things like that, little common sense things he would offer. And it really made a lot of sense. And it really, in the long run, helped me a lot. He included my parents in therapy. He included my brother when he was home in therapy. He had essays on how to improve your sleep, improve your eating, positive relationships, how to invest money, and so on. And he added to the conversations that we had. We talked about my dreams. We talked about my past, very detailed, very opposite in comparison to the other psychiatrists that I had been seeing for seven years. That psychiatrist is more Freudian. He didn't say anything during the sessions, really no common sense. He didn't share any of experiences that might have enlightened me. And he never really addressed the symptoms of my illness, the oncoming nervous breakdowns. The symptoms were low self-esteem, not sleeping, not eating, irrational thinking, paranoia, looking far into the future, thinking that I was going to be abandoned, isolated. I was very isolated. And that would be the symptoms forth to a forthcoming episode. With George, I we were very conscious of these symptoms. And we were able to deal with, the, address the symptoms before the onset of a tragic nervous breakdown. Now, I will say with the other doctor, the Freudian doctor, I had gone through episodes every six months to a year. Starting with George, he really turned my life around, but I still had episodes, but it, it occurred like one year, then after two or three years, then after four years. Ruth, let's let's help people understand Freudian psychiatrist versus the other one. Uh, people sort of have a historical memory if or just have seen TV where Freud was mentioned. But yeah. there's a boy, is there a big difference? Yes. Well, the Freudian, uh, uh, they you know, you're supposed to lie on the couch and free associate. Talk about your dreams. Talk about your bath past. You're going deep into your past. And, you know, you just keep rambling associ associations. And you're supposed to learn and get to the bottom of what really was the cause of all of all of these mental breakdowns or mental condition. And but if, it didn't, according it didn't to really, Freud, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Right. It, yeah, it could be. Right. But 
it didn't it didn't really work I, it didn't work for me it wasn't effective it wasn't I needed more common sense in my life I had too much stimulus in my life too many activities at once and it just you know he didn't say you know just keep your 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 your, your survival simple you know not not too many friends not you know, I was jumping from friends to friends. I was jumping from job to job after school, after my completion of college. And I was in the male-dominated construction field, which didn't help. I was not performing at my best at jobs. I got too personal at jobs, which also undermined my stability. And uh, George, on the other hand, he offered all this common sense. He, he said, do the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And um, so that that was a high-risk psychiatrist for me. You know, he took on my case. And that's certainly the basis of many of the 12-step programs. It's the keep it simple, sweetie, they like right. to say, because... <laughs> You know, people are pretty beaten up all over the world. And, and you're a, a great example of resilience in so many ways because uh, uh, people suffer all kinds of different things, often fall into hideous, impossible addictions out of which they have no idea to get. I don't even know if that's a sentence, but it sounds like Winston Churchill. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, yes. this, this stuff is impossible. And, you know, they say if it's hysterical, it's historical. So a lot of our reactions to anything, especially if it's stimulated by drugs, alcohol, angel dust, things that you didn't even intend to take, but triggered reactions. You know, I wonder if there's uh, familial history uh, with your people where you're sort of ready for the other shoe to drop and it doesn't take much to help that drop and imagine that it's actually happening that way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I had no, I had no history of any of this. You know, it it was total. I was taken by shock when all this happened, and um, you know, my family really didn't have any of these problems. So you know, I had no, you know, I had no knowledge of when this happened to me. You know, it took it took many years to learn my limitations and to find the right medication it took it took many years and by the way in 1977 when this when i ate the brownie yeah medications at that time were not really pluralistic they only had like two medications to take for paranoia and whatever and in the 1990s a whole plethora of medications were available in 1990s and the 2000s. So it was much, much different. Psychiatry is much different today than back then. So you found that antipsychotics were really helpful. Absolutely. I found it in 1999 when I was in a hospital, uh, in, ho in hospital, inpatient. A doctor there recommended this medication, Zyprexa, and that really helped. But I still had breakdowns. I had to establish the right dosage of the medication. Once I established the right dosage, that was in 2010, I've been break free. No more breaks. I triggered it. You know, I would be at a job. I would get too personal. 
I was the low end of the totem pole. I was not performing great at my work. I felt uh, like a pariah. I felt isolated because I couldn't share. I was ashamed to share my life, my breakdowns with anybody. I kept that a secret, but I got paranoid that they could see through me and see that I was no, I wasn't any good. Um, and that kind of, and my low self-esteem, which lingered and followed me and my low grade depression. So it just, be, it became, it triggered. And then I would start to lose sleep and my mind would race. Did I say I have severe conscience? And then it would just snowball into a, a breakdown. And that would happen every six months to a year. Absolutely. In, in that period from 1977 to 1987. I'm thinking of all the women listening right now, watching right now, who can relate to your story, who may have been ashamed or too threatened to ever reveal, talk about, share what has happened to them in a similar enough situation. So you're actually getting to articulate what has happened to millions of women in this country, and they just maybe can't talk about it. So through you, knowing that there is help, there is recovery, uh, this is extraordinary. And your memoir has received critical acclaim because it's very well written, it's compelling, and it tells a great story. And I think it really helps people. I'm guessing, apart from your art, we'll get into that in just a second, that's why you wrote it, to help people. Absolutely. I felt, you know, I would say if I can go through it, if the if the writer can go through all of this, the 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 reader say you know she went through all that you know look what I'm going through I can get through this because this author me went through all of this and there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm turn this off. Hold on. There, while you're doing that, there is yes. a there is a um, actually I'm going to let you turn that off. If I can. Can't talk. Sorry about that. Real <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. My phone is blowing up on me 24 hours a day. Yeah, I have to store I, it in the kitchen just to get a minute's peace. I kept it on in case we couldn't get in touch. That's why I kept my phone on. Well, yeah. happily, we are reliable, so we are here yeah. for you. And you are here for us, and you're here for an audience that gets to hear a voice of somebody who has gone through years and years of trying to figure out what it was. Now we know you've given great steps of what people can do. If they feel this way, they can reach out. And that's one of the things that we do at Riverside Recovery is we make available treatments for all kinds of different issues that are, people are going through. Certainly most of them have to do like yours uh, with drug interactions and things like that, addictions and a chance for recovery. And as we say, to get back the life you love. And now you have found art and art seems to be a big cure. We know it is for veterans who come back from battle. We find that art is one of the most soothing, uh, ameliorative, delicious ways of coping with life that actually brings back joy and happiness. And that's your story too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. That was in 1988. George, my psychiatrist, suggested I take up painting because I, I had a talent and an affinity for it. And that was uh, involved in my architecture. I was good in math and art. So that's what I, I, I went into architecture initially. But the politics and the harshness of the environment did not agree with me, obviously. So 
And he said, why don't you take up painting? So from 1988, I've been painting ever since. And I developed these surreal, complex narratives that people can relate to. They're very relatable allegories. And, um, and the discipline that I acquired from architecture in a very slow process uh, attributed to my complex narrative storytelling. Um, to, to, to do these paintings requires a lot of patience, diligence, and most of all, discipline. And here we are today. You have a book that people are enjoying. Um, it's perfect for uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, which seems to be every month, in my opinion. I don't think there oh, yes. should be a month off. <laughs> oh, yes. And you're an artist, and you've been grappling with severe mental illness for decades, but you found the fix. And during this Mental Health Awareness Month, these endless months, we've been looking at your journey that started with a bite of PCP-laced brownie, inadvertent bite, by the way. It was handed to you. You didn't know. You didn't vote yes. You didn't even want it. But you had that PCP-laced brownie with a long series following of mental breakdowns, including insomnia, depression, paranoia, things that many people are familiar with can relate to. And then painting and art, along with excellent psychiatry, you reached out for help. I'm going to say that again. You reached out for help, and that made the difference. And your memoir shows others that they are not alone and recovery is possible. You can find out more about Ruth's journey and resilience in her critically acclaimed memoir, Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist. You can also go to ruthponiarski.com. I'm going to spell that for those of you listening with ears and not eyes. That's R-U-T-H-P-O-N-I-A-R-S-K-I, Poniarski, ruthponiarski.com. And I want to thank you, Ruth Poniarski, for having joined us today on Reboot Your Life. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all that you do. Are you familiar with Riverside Recovery of Tampa? Well, they offer a profound, all-embracing approach to addiction treatment. With a dedicated team of empathetic professionals, Riverside Recovery is committed to guiding individuals on their path to enduring recovery, using a variety of science-backed therapies, counseling, and support services. Riverside Recovery values the individuality of every recovery journey. Their tailored treatment plans respond to the specific needs, the hurdles, the goals of each resident, providing effective aid regardless of whether you're taking your first steps in recovery or maintaining your progress. With Riverside, recovery isn't just achievable, it's an influential journey towards a healthier, brighter future. The testimonials of those who've undergone treatment there are evidence of rediscovered self-worth and potential. Located on the tranquil Hillsborough River of Tampa, Riverside serves as a peaceful haven, promoting self-discovery and healing. They acknowledge that recovery is about more than just overcoming difficulties. It's also about finding your innate strength and resilience. The Riverside Recovery's committed team are your empathetic allies in your recovery journey. They comprehend that genuine healing involves the mind, the body, and the spirit, meticulously dealing with all facets of addiction. You can discover more at rrtampa.com. That's rrtampa.com. Or reach out at 1-800-871-5440. That's 800-871-5440. 800-871-5440 or rrtampa.com. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. 
Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-628-7226. 800-628-7226. That's 800-628-7226. Do you need to get your hands on some extra money right now? Maybe $25,000 or more? If you're a homeowner, now is a perfect time to get cash out while homes in many neighborhoods like yours have gone up in value. You can use the money for anything. It's yours. You can buy an investment property, pay off higher interest debt, or make home improvements. If you need $25,000, $50,000, or more, now is the time. Home values are up, and so is your equity. We offer you a way to use it. No need to use your savings. Call New American Funding now and see how much cash out you can get. Call 800-932-1781. 800-932-1781. That's 800-932-1781. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity. Can your IRA stand up to the next financial crisis that our top economists are saying is at our doorsteps? By allocating a percentage of your IRA into physical gold and silver with a tax-free rollover, you can diversify and safeguard your holdings from turbulent markets and economic downturns by putting your IRA back on the gold standard. Find out how to safeguard your assets with a tax-free rollover with a Genesis Gold IRA, the only IRA that can hold physical precious metals. Call now for your free gold and silver report. Protect your IRA today with one simple phone call and learn how to qualify for up to $10,000 in free silver. Call Genesis Gold Group, empowering faith-driven stewardship. 800-915-2051. 800-915-2051. 800-915-2051. That's 800-915-2051.